Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? I'm pretty certain you've heard me say this before. Every week, we take a deep dive into one aspect of climate change. This week, we're going one step, or should I say one stroke, closer to that literal reality by going beneath the waves. We're talking seaweed or kelp or variations thereof. When I was a kid, I'd come to this beach in Vancouver and inevitably my sisters and I would find seaweed, that kind with a bulb on the end, and we'd start whipping it around like a lasso, endless hours of fun. So I might have thought it was cool back then, but not like now. Seaweed is special for those who bother to look, and it's having a moment, being talked up as a solution to food insecurity, to methane emissions, and more. There's even, and we'll get to this more in a moment, a global seaweed manifesto. But there's another reason it's on the radar, because some kelp beds and forests are also under threat from, you guessed it, climate change. Coming up, the peril and promise of seaweed. We start today in Bella Bella on BC's central coast, in a community that has relied on seaweed for millennia, In 2016, the delicate red algae the Heltzik harvest each spring for food all but disappeared. Mike Reed is the fisheries manager for the Heltzik Integrated Resource Department. Hello. Hello. Mike, can you tell me what happened with the seaweed pyropia a few years ago? Uh, It actually started with the, uh, the ocean blob that was detected off the California coast in 2013. It was a body of water that... Uh, was different than the surrounding water. And in that body of water, there was uh, a fair temperature increase from the surrounding water, uh, less oxygen, uh, more acidic. First observations from scientists was, you know, fish and birds and mammals were kind of fleeing from that zone of uh, increased water temperature. And what was the impact in Bella Bella? What, what happened? Um, we saw issues with the uh, seaweed, the pyropia, decrease in biomass or volume. And in 2016, I think just a rough estimate, it was probably around a 90 to 95% decrease in the biomass. Wow, 90%. How unusual is that kind of a loss? Some of our you know, elder folks, uh, you know, we obviously discussed with them if they'd ever seen it before, and no one had ever saw any sort of decrease in pyropia over their time, and they've never heard of it. That must have been pretty shocking. Well, what did it mean for people in, in your community to lose the pyropia that year? It was pretty shocking because it is, it is uh, you know, one of the uh, items that we harvest annually for, you know, our food consumption and... Uh, you know, we take it and dry it and uh, store it 
but when they it didn't come back that year, it's you know another thing that's kind of off your plate, I guess, so to speak. It was pretty devastating. So that's one thing, and then but more recently, you've been seeing problems with the giant kelp that you use for your herring fishery. Tell me about that. The giant kelp or macrocystis, uh, we also observed in that same time frame a encrustation it's called bryozone it's a, like a little living creature and it's it's normal around the uh, bc coast and i guess with the uh, the blob the warming waters a uh, large increase of bryozone was observed in our kelp biomass or kelp beds over the time from 2016 until present the bryozone increased fairly dramatically where uh, the coverage of the bryozone on the kelp was heavy enough in quite a number of cases where the uh, kelp actually has sunk to the bottom. But what does that, that mean though for the herring spawn fishery? It's obviously a concern uh, for the spawn fishery but it's also a broader concern for the whole ecosystem. The whole ecosystem obviously comes first in our our, our minds and our way of life here. Uh, the kelp biomass is used for coverage for herring fry, salmon fry, rockfish, a whole lot of creatures. And, you know, when kelp starts to disappear and uh, sink to the bottom, it's concerning. Right. All, all those uh, you species know. you mentioned that they they sort of like the herring spawn on it and other other organisms as you say use it for cover. So that brings up the question of what will happen do you think if the kelp continues to deteriorate as the years go by? There there will be impacts to uh, a whole lot of species to the ecosystem in general. The kelp forest is like the you know the land forest you know in the land forest you know all sorts of animals use it for their habitat, uh, you know, deer and birds and everything else. The uh, kelp forests are, are the same in the ocean. They're, there's all sorts of creatures that use it for their habitat, uh, for rearing areas. And when that disappears, their life cycle changes and alters for the worst. So... Mike, just just for our listeners generally, can you give us a sense of just how important seaweed is to the Helsinki First Nation? The seaweed uh, is important to the Helsinki First Nations, but we actually see it more important than to the ecosystem. And when you know the ecosystem starts to crash the way it is with the uh, seaweed, it it has more broader effects uh, than just our needs in regards to the uh, like the spawn and kelp for instance you know the health of carter we're all part of the ecosystem and when you try to separate yourself out too much from it uh, it's it doesn't work out that well uh, we're part of it and you know we have to do our part how worried though are you about what these problems with seaweed say about ocean health in general you know for the most part i think the the ocean health is probably at a more critical point uh, at this time than any other time in history. Uh, if you look at the Central Coast, for instance, over time, you know, or the whole BC coast, you know, it was a 
thriving coastal area with you know vast populations of salmon and all other sorts of resources and when you come here now um, if you look at the uh, central coast above water it's still as beautiful as it, it has ever been but when you look under the ocean it isn't the ecosystem is in trouble with the added issue i guess with the ocean temperatures rising it's you know it's very concerning yeah you sound really troubled about all of this it is uh, you know we live here and we see it all the time the whole ecosystem is alive but in some of these places now it looks like we're going into a, like a dead zone everything's been changed and that's very alarming so what, what, what do you think is needed to, when it comes to protecting the health of the oceans, both, both in your area and even around the world? It needs to have more open minds. Uh, we're just going down the path right now with working with the uh, federal government on marine protected areas. And everybody needs to think about more about down the road, you know, the future generations for all of us. Uh, you know, we all have children and they'll have children. And I think when we're protecting these areas, those are the people that we're protecting for. I wish you good luck with, with your research going forward and with, with the kelp, quite frankly. And I thank you for your time. Okay, thank you very much, Laura. Mike Reed is one of the members of the Heltzik and other First Nations, partnered with scientists at Simon Fraser University as they collect data and monitor the health of the giant kelp forests. On Canada's east coast, some kelp beds have already long died out, but others off of Nova Scotia have survived. Now, as we know, with all things climate, it's complicated. Anna Metaxas studies both shallow and deep-sea ecosystems. She's a professor at the Department of Oceanography at Dalhousie University, and we reached her in Halifax. Hello. Hello, Laura. When it comes to the kelp beds that died off of Nova Scotia, what role did warming ocean temperatures play? It's complicated, as, as you said. Um, Halifax and Nova Scotia region in general is supposed to be a, a hot spot of warming. So the waters off uh, Atlantic coast are supposed to warm faster than waters in, in other parts of the world. Over the last 30 years, we have seen increases in temperature of up to one, one and a half degrees, both in summer and in winter. So these temperatures, these increases, although they're not going to kill the kelp directly. They make it, you know, a little bit less prone to growth, so it's growing a little more slowly. Uh, okay. Are there other factors, though? Yes. Warming is having an impact on other animals that affect the kelp. We have had an invasive species, an alien species, the natural habitat is on the west coast of Canada, and it was introduced here, probably through ballast water. You mean from ships? From ships, yes. yes. Okay. Uh, and over time, this species become established, and that's why they're called alien or invasive, because this is not their natural home. And this particular species is um, an animal that forms sort of lacy-looking crusts on the kelp leaf, called a kelp blade, but essentially it's the leaf of the blade, and it covers it completely. 
And the warmer the water is, the more it grows. And the more it grows, the more of the kelp it covers. What it does by covering it, it makes it really brittle. When storms come through that have big waves, those kelp blades break. With climate change, we're getting more storms and we're getting stronger storms. And so more and more of the kelp blades break up every year. It has been very consistent over the last 10 to 15 years. And it's, it's, it's interesting because um, just before we spoke to a gentleman on the central coast of British Columbia where they are, have experienced the same thing with the seaweed, that the bryozoa that's traveled, as you said, all the way over to the east coast and is wreaking havoc there. But I'm wondering, what about restoring the kelp beds? Can we give them a boost by reseeding them where they used to live? So this is tricky. Under some conditions, that would help. For example, if you could somehow exterminate this alien species from the waters of Nova Scotia, then if you wanted to restore the kelps, yes, you could help them. But if you don't eliminate the invasive species, the stressor, what causes the kelp to break up in the first place, you're going to end up with a new kelp that you've planted having the exact same fate. So let me ask the obvious question. Why not just get get rid of the alien species? It's not easy. Um, These are species that can tolerate a wide range of conditions. And also they lose the animals that feed on them. So their predators are not in this new system. They don't exist. And so their populations can really explode. Why is it, though, then, that, that some kelp beds seem to have survived? And what does that tell us about what could be done to help turn around the areas that are having problems? So this is a very interesting question and a question that my lab, my, my research group, is actually spending time now in the next few years trying to understand why some kelp beds do better than others. We have lost the kelp beds on the coast southwest of Halifax. Most of the coast, the kelps are gone. But we discovered an area east of Halifax where the kelps are thriving. They're luxuriant, very, very healthy. The area they live in is an area that has a lot of wave action. It's a lot of water currents, circulation, water moves fast through there. And so the growth of the kelp may be higher simply because the temperature will remain cooler. Uh, There's no stagnant water, if you wish. The other thing that happens is when you have a lot of waves, the, the plant itself, the seaweed itself, adapts as it's thicker, as it's stronger, because it has to be able to withstand stronger wave action. And so it could be that because those the seaweeds are built more strong, maybe they don't break as, as much. Does that give you any any clues as to how you could actually restore the kelp in other areas, or, or is it, it just has, it depends on where they are and there's nothing you can do about it? I think what it does give me a clue about is where we can hope to sustain kelp beds. And so it could be that if we find out why kelp beds are more resilient to this uh, demise, then maybe we can make sure that those areas are protected from all other external stressors. Uh, We can't control invasive species. So if we protect those areas from other stressors, perhaps by putting in protected areas, marine protected areas, uh, to encompass such healthy kelp beds. I think that will help a lot. Why should we care about what is happening to the kelp beds? Kelp beds are like trees. They're very important because they capture carbon dioxide because they're plants. 
And like any plant on land or any tree, they take carbon dioxide out of our air and they change it to carbon and then they release oxygen. And so they can absorb a lot of the carbon dioxide in the air and then they convert them to kelp. And then what happens is they can actually capture that carbon and keep it trapped. But the way they do it, they do it differently than trees. So the tree will capture and sequester that carbon in the soil immediately below the tree. But with a kelp blade, what it does is when it breaks and it dies, it sort of rolls downhill into the deep sea. And there it gets consumed by animals that have very little food. Or what will happen is that carbon will get buried in the sediment. And once it gets buried in the mud in the deep sea, it will not resurface back into the atmosphere. Is kelp also, though, an important part of keeping the ocean ecosystem healthy? Absolutely. Animals come into the kelp beds to feed because obviously there's a lot of plant material there. There's a lot of food. Other animals find shelter in kelp beds. So the young of fish like cod, actually other redfish, uh, they actually live in the kelp bed when they're small and that protects them from whoever eats them. Anamataxis, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Laura. Anna Metaxas is a professor in the Department of Oceanography at Dalhousie University in Halifax. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Seaweed is also drawing the urgent attention of the United Nations. In fact, the UN Global Compact has recently released what it calls a seaweed manifesto as part of its corporate sustainability initiative. One of the editors of the manifesto is Vincent Dumézel. He's a senior advisor at the UN Global Compact. Hello. Hello. Why does seaweed need a manifesto? Seaweed it can be the source of so many different and very positive things both for our health and for the planet. So seaweed is a great source of food, for instance, but it's also a source of indirect food, meaning it can be a source of feed and, and support animal feed with very nice positive effect because it boosts immune system for the animals. Another very interesting effect when used as feed is the capacity of seaweed to cut methane emission uh, by the livestock. Seaweed may also be a source of bioplastic, of biopackaging, and reduce the use of plastics. I've got it. Can also, I just stop you for yeah. a second? I mean, yeah, yeah. you are citing seaweed's potential for so many things. It sounds like a miracle. Um, and yet some of these uses that you're talking about, including um, as a way to, as a feed to cut methane emissions from livestock, they're not yet widely available. So why are you so enthusiastic? We are at the beginning of the journey when it comes to seaweed. We have to become farmers of the ocean. We have to integrate this entire ecosystem 
now uh, global systems. That's why I'm so enthusiastic, because I think we are just starting to uh, understand what's going on there. Um, you also talk about the science of, of seaweed helping to permanently sequester additional carbon on the ocean floor, but the science in that is so um, unsettled and, and early on. So are you sure there's promise there? And if you are, why? Well, um, if, if you look at facts, yes, seaweed does absorb uh, a lot of greenhouse gas. The, the big question we have and which is making people, including myself, very careful on the carbon sequestration aspect, if we want seaweed to have a serious impact on global warming, then we have to grow a lot of seaweed. Then we have to uh, design big, big uh, cultivation area on seaweed. And then the big question that we have is what will be the impact on the global ecosystem? We have to be very careful with this because once something happens in the ocean, it goes very quickly out of control. Um, you know, let's be very careful with what we do. We need a lot of scientific uh, publication. What are the challenges um, that you list in the manifesto to actually making all of these things happen? One of the biggest challenges is the lack of collaboration. So typically today, seaweed is a known topic with the exception of Asia, where it's already absolutely mainstream. Another big problem, which is quite counterintuitive, is the lack of space, actually. So we need standards and we need to understand where to grow seaweed. I'm wondering, uh, just on a bit of a personal note, why did you become so interested in seaweed as a potential answer? Well, that's absolutely uh, <laughs> random, I would say. Uh, I have been working a lot for uh, in the food industry. I was looking for solutions to feed the world of tomorrow because we know that we have to feed 300,000 people in addition every day on the planet. And to find a solution to the challenge, I try to investigate different things. And I came to understand a bit more about seaweed. And, but and <laughs> can I ask you this? Do you eat seaweed regularly? I'm trying to, <laughs> to be honest with you. The problem is that I think my kids are absolutely uh, disgusted with seaweed you know, because I, I speak about seaweed all day long. So when I try to cook seaweed, uh, they're like, oh, no, I'm fed up with that. What's your best seaweed dish? I like wakame. I like uh, crepe, so pancake with kombu royal as well. Maybe I will try that. Um, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Vincent Dumézel edited the recently published Seaweed Manifesto. Now, we could not close out this episode without letting you hear from the man variously dubbed a guru or a godfather of the slippery stuff. Oh, hi. My name is Louis Droll. I live in Banfield on the west coast of Vancouver Island. I guess I'm having this interview because of my interest and participation in the world of kelp. Um, I think that uh, this is a wonderful topic, and I'll just pass you over to... Laura. Uh, so tell me how your, uh, I guess we call them crops. <laughs> how are your crops doing where you are these days? Uh, the crops are doing very well. They're about two millimeters long and being pl planted now as we speak. Now, you are an academic, a professor of marine biology with a lifelong specialty in kelp. And I'm wondering why, what, what attracted you s to study it in the first place? <laughs> Uh, I guess the truth is, is, as you go through life, you come to these little dichotomies. Sometimes you recognize them and sometimes not, but you go either to the right or to the left. And I went to the right and the left, and I got to kelp. I've always been a botanist. I've loved plants, but there is just something about these big brown things, which I consider to be kind of the dinosaurs of the plant world, that caught my attention. And so I dedicated my life to them. 
Yeah, well, there's one thing for it to catch your attention, but why has it become a lifelong passion? It's just, they're, they're just fascinating, and they're always full of surprises. It's, it's not, oh, um, help it another day. There's always something new going on. And you, and you have seen interest and excitement build around the promise of kelp and seaweed before in the 1980s, but it was for a much different reason. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so that was during the period of what they called the OPEC crisis. And this was a time when the price of oil went over $100 a barrel, and those were $1980. So it became very expensive to use that type of a fossil fuel. So the world, and particularly the United States, became interested in discovering alternative fuels, biofuels, fuels. And uh, I was I was tagged as somebody who knew something about kelp at that time. And uh, I was taken to Catalina Island, much to my delight, in the winter. And uh, we learned about the giant kelp down there and its potential as a biofuel source. And what happened with it? <laughs> the OPEC crisis went away. And the money went away. And the interest went away. And I went back to Banfield. Right. So in spite of all of that, you kept growing the, the kelp, the seaweed. Um, and so here we are, people talking about seaweed now as an answer to food shortages or, or food shortages getting worse in the world. Does that seem like a realistic thing to do with kelp? Um, yes, it does. Uh, but not just kelp, but farming the sea makes a lot of sense. because Simply because we're running out of arable land, and we're not running out of people, uh, and so the demand is going to increase. So the sea is a logical place to turn to. Kelp isn't the only thing. It's not really a good source of energy. If you eat kelp, you get all your minerals and you got a lot of fancy little chemicals, but you don't get the energy compounds, which is necessary for basic human nutrition. So it's part of a good diet in your word, in your view. Yeah. So there is there is one outfit here now in British Columbia that's uh, going very large, and their major focus, as I understand it, is to produce kelp for protein. And that, that would be a good use. But what about you? How often? I'm assuming you eat the stuff. Oh, yeah. I eat it every day. Every day? Every day. Tell me <laughs> about how you prepare it. <laughs> <laughs> the way I do is I, I take uh, some dried kelp, so it's like a little sheet of brown material, and I stick it in the toaster for about 10 to 15 seconds. It pops up. It's nice and crunchy. It's nice and salty. And the salt, of course, is potassium and not sodium. So I don't feel too bad about that, and I enjoy that with my breakfast. Do you put anything on it? No, no, no. <laughs> it's like a potato chip with good salt on it. What do you think it would take then to make seaweed a truly global industry? Uh, I think uh, realization that it is a, could be an extremely important participant in our stepping away from fossil fuels. I think that would be the single best thing that could happen with it. It has potential as a good uh, biofuel and also as, as a feeder stock for the production of plastics. So those are two major uh, contaminants uh, of our atmosphere is to using the fossil fuels for those uses. And if we remove those, we would perhaps make a dent in the bigger problem of uh, climate change. Well, I'm wondering when, when you, how often do you go out on the boat and, and uh, sort of inspect the kelp farms that you've got? How often are you out on the water? Uh, not often enough. We're going out tomorrow to set some, as I mentioned, it's planting time. 
Uh, I'm mostly involved in all of this now in my ripe old age as an advisor, but I insist on going out on the water once in a while and uh, seeing what's going on and getting a breath of really fresh air. Tell me what it's like when you're out there on the water. Well, first of all, no two days are the same. We go out on the boat, same place, same old route, same old farm, and it's always different. The water's different, the air's different, uh, marine life, avian life around are different. So it's, it's always a discovery in that sense, and uh, I just find it stimulating. It sounds like an ideal life that you have. It is. I'm sitting in my little office at the shack next to our house, but I'm looking out the window at Port Desire, and I see right now a bunch of Braganser ducks swimming by, and I'm wondering what they're thinking. And I see, you know, the ocean going up and down with the tides, and I'm always amazed by how you lift all that water, say, up to uh, three or four meters down two times a day. So it seems as though kelp has sustained you, not only as a food, but it seems to have sustained you spiritually. Yes, very much so. I uh, I also write, and uh, I have a couple of little crummy poems, I won't cite them on the air, about kelp, and uh, it just sustains me in every way, uh, sometimes to the chagrin of my life, wife. <laughs> Well, Louis Drool, thank you very much for talking to us, and I hope you enjoy your day on the, on the water. Well, thank you very much, and I appreciate your attention. Louis Drool is a professor emeritus of marine biology who has worked at both the Bamfield Marine Sciences Center and Simon Fraser University. He also owns a kelp food products company with his wife, Ray Hopkins. Now, before we go today, we have some good news to share. We will stay on your airways until June of 2021. Same time on Sundays and on demand at CBC Listen. Thanks to the What on Earth team, associate producer Rachel Sanders, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our technician is Matthias Wolfson. Monisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.